Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Penfield, joined as always by Alex Duvall. What's up, man? Uh, Joel, not much. I was in an outstanding mood. Um, grandparents came over to meet their great-grandson tonight, and they were uh, they brought us pizza. So I had Minsky's Pizza, and I was uh, sitting down to watch a Royals game and record this with you. Um, had a great day at work and whatever. And then the Royals' second-best hitter bunted to start the game and immediately bumped the ball right back to the pitcher who turned and threw Witt out at second. And I just – I didn't need that. I was in a groove. I was having a great night. And then Nicky Lopez squares the bunt in the first inning of a 0-0 game. So, I mean, I I don't get it. I just – I am so tired of this old-school BS. Like, I, I totally – like, I am – I'm going to get off on a tangent here, and I don't mean to, but I am all for still having a little bit of small ball – involved in the right situation the first inning of a game when your team is 40 games below 500 ain't it that's not it this is not the time for bunting bunting should be illegal for this club right now you need to learn to hit learn to hit so that we can be good next year and until you learn to hit and we're not bunting we're not doing it this year so i don't know i just i literally just sat down the first thing on the screen is Nicky Lopez bunting? So you got to be kidding me! So it's not—it's not like Nicky's hitting like 380 over his last three weeks or nothing. You know, not a big deal. He can just give up and out there. So whatever, man. We got bigger fish to fry tonight. Yeah, tons to talk about. Mainly with the big league club. That we know that we're the the minor league podcast and whatnot. But there's a lot more news regarding the future of the Kansas City Royals and what we're going to see over the next few years. Um, that these guys, you know, if you want to try and spin it back to the minor leagues, like the guys that we're talking about now, we're going to be really affected by this. And we'll start first with the, some of the leadership and organizational changes that were announced yesterday. Uh, John Sherman, Dayton Moore held a press conference. Uh, Dayton Moore is moving now to the president of baseball operations. Uh, Assistant GM director of player development, JJ Piccolo will now become the general manager. This, this is going to be very intriguing. And for Royals fans that may not know, like what we talk about with the minor league system and everything that has seen it go from one of the worst in baseball to now top three, a lot of it, a vast majority of it has to do with what JJ Piccolo has done and some of the the hires that he's made and the decisions that he's made. So this is going to have a huge impact on this team. And if you like some of the stuff that we've seen with the resurgence of Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, Bobby Wood Jr. Becoming a budding superstar, the, 2018 class where you've got all of this pitching that the Royals didn't have it all go. You can all tie it back to JJ Piccolo. So I'm very intrigued with what he's going to do as the general manager. Now we don't know how much power Dayton Moore is going to relinquish when it comes to baseball operation type decision-making, but it certainly is going to be an interesting storyline over the next year or so. Yeah. And I think Dayton made a good point. I think Dayton, by the way, I know I rave about him all the time. He could not have handled that better at that press conference. And he said, um, you know, he's like, I trust these guys. I, I coached them. And by the way, it kind of, it says a lot about a guy that if you, if you raise and coach these guys to do what, um, to do your job and then don't trust them to do your job, that says a lot about you. So delegating power actually speaks a lot to what you think you've done as, as, as a coach to these men, um, speaks a lot to how the job you think you did. And so as we as we circle back to his his influence, I think Dayton Moore's influence from now on 
is going to be about process and signing the bill when it comes. Um, I, I think about this like like a dad taking his kids to, to a restaurant and follow me on this. My dad, anytime we would go out to eat when I was a kid, my dad didn't order for me. Now, if I tried to order a soda when I was seven years old on a Wednesday night, um, you know, that probably wasn't going to fly. It's like, yeah, yeah, probably not going to have any soda tonight. You got school tomorrow, all those good things. Um, but he let me make my own decisions. He let me order my food, blah, blah, blah. Maybe he would veto uh, every now and then or make sure I had a vegetable on the side. And then when the bill came, he signed it. Um, so that's kind of what I think Dayton Moore is going to be. If J.J. Piccolo wants to make a trade for Josh Lowe this offseason, I don't think Dayton Moore is going to be too um, too influential in vetoing that because he doesn't like Josh Lowe. I think it'll be because um, the process isn't right, and then when it's time to make that final decision, Dayton Moore will sign off on it, send it to John Sherman, send it to the league's office, and, and that'll be that. But I don't think it'll be too much micromanaging. I really don't believe – that Dayton Moore is going to micromanage the daily decisions made by J.J. Piccolo. And, and, I, and I'm excited about that. Um, I'm as outspokenly supportive of Dayton Moore as anybody, but I think this is a really good change of pace for what a growing organization needs in 2021. So you mentioned J.J. Piccolo and some of the influence he's had on the minor league system. He's been a part of the big league club operations before, too. He's kind of been back and forth, and I want to I want to word this as sensitively as possible. I think JJ's willingness to adapt to the modern era of baseball got him this job. He is not the only candidate that they looked at for this job. He isn't the only candidate that would have had a very fair shot at having this job. He's not the only person qualified for the job, but his being around the club, his knowing every in and out of how it works – and his willingness to adapt is the reason he got the job. Yeah, and first of all, I'd just like to say that was a great Colin Cowherd-type analogy that you brought into this uh, to start off. But, but no, I agree with you. It, no, I, I support Dayton Moore as well, and I don't, want to, you know, I don't want you to be off on your own island here in this. I think the vast majority of the decisions he's, he's made, and when you consider what Dayton Moore inherited to what he was able to turn it into – it may not have manifested in more than a couple of winning seasons, but when you think about where they started to where they were able to get, and now we're starting to see that next wave come through for a small market team. It that's just kind of the nature of the beast and just kind of the way it goes, unless you have the Uber, you know, player development on steroids, like in Oakland days or a Tampa Bay race have that are small market and able to, to make that the Royals are just, they have not been that team up until the last few years. I feel like that has really started to ramp up and we could see some of that more, sustained levels of success and bottoming out significantly like they were in the past. And I think JJ Piccolo, like you said, being willing to adapt to a more modern era of baseball in thinking and player development and drafting and things of that nature could help propel this team forward in that regard. Yeah. And I kind of wonder how much of this, like, I, I don't want to put the tinfoil hat on, but I think there's some legitimate uh, something, legitimately something to this, but it's going to sound a little conspiratorial. I wonder how much of the adapting that has gone on in the Royal system lately has anything to do with um, Robert Moore playing at Arkansas. So let's say you're dating Moore. You're, you grow up, you have this style of baseball that you're gun ho on. This is the way we're going to do things. Your son goes off to college to play for indisputably one of the best college baseball coaches in the country at one of the best college programs in the country. 
and comes back and says, Hey dad, you know, we really got to, you know, if you're going to do something with the Royals, here's some things we're doing at Arkansas that are outstanding, that are a little bit different. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it doesn't. I, I truly believe that it's possible, but I don't know. But did, but did Dayton watching his son go through, help him adapt? And, and is Dayton taking a promotion? Is this going to help him be, you know, able to watch his son play more baseball. Dayton was in Arkansas watching his son play, by the way, which he should be doing. Exactly. The Royals have been really good about letting, you know, coaches go. And I think even the Red Sox let John Farrell come watch Luke uh, make his MLB debut at Kauffman Stadium. So this is something he should be able to go do. His son's going to get drafted. His son's going to play professional baseball. Dayton should be in a role that allows him to go watch that more. But I just can't help but wonder how much Robert's being – getting ready to be a third year player at Arkansas impacted this in any way. I don't know. Um, but I do kind of wonder, you know, if, if there's anything to that at all. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that there's something to it. And I, I'm sure that there's some level of like not wanting near as much of a conflict of interest as Robert becomes a, you know, a draft eligible player and things like that. That doesn't mean the Royals still might not take Robert Moore. I don't know if that's, you know, possible or going to be the case, depending on, you know, how his junior year goes, but it's certainly something interesting to, to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah. And I hope I didn't come off as that's what I meant. Cause I, I think there's a 0% no, no, no. chance. Okay. Yeah. There's a 0% chance they draft Robert Moore. I'll, I'll go on record as saying that you can at freezing cold takes if they draft him. They won't. They will not draft Robert Moore. And you talk about conflict of interest. That is um, – and putting other minor league players, giving them a reason to have angst about uh, anything that has to do with Robert, that is a that is a big-time decision and a big-time role that Dayton shouldn't have to be involved in. And so they won't draft Dayton, Robert Moore. But it is ironic that he might be the best player available on the board when they draft and they're not going to be able to take them. Now, luckily, next year's draft is, is loaded. But I want to talk about John Sherman's role in this really quick. Because when David Glass owned the team, his son, Dan, was a president of baseball operations. When John bought the team, his son, um, I don't know what Mr. Sherman's name is, uh, his first whatever, John's son was his right-hand man in business, and he became the president of baseball operations. But – I don't get the impression that he's big baseball guy. So what this does is it allows John Sherman to have as his right-hand man, a baseball genius who is also um, very involved in the community, very involved like the urban youth Academy, which is Dayton's baby. Right. So um, I think this allows Dayton to do what he does best. And that's to run a baseball organization and allow someone who is more, capable of putting together a modern successful big league lineup on the field in the general manager's role. I think that's a great point. Again, and congrats to JJ. He has definitely paid his dues in this industry for, for many years, uh, part of the Braves organization and the Royals uh, over many years. And this is a culmination of, I'm sure, you know, so many years of hard work and, and dedication and uh, congrats to him uh, for sure. Some other news that John Sherman talked about in that press conference is the really the moving forward for a downtown stadium for the Royals within the next five to 10 years of that being a very serious possibility. Uh, I believe the, the lease with Kauffman stadium ends in 2031. So we're still, we're still a ways off from this, but it feels inevitable at this point that within the next 10 years, the Royals will not be playing at the K, which is going to be very weird. 
And I think that's just kind of where I sit with it. I understand the, the reasoning for why a downtown stadium is inevitable. That doesn't make it any less weird. I don't like it. And I don't understand like the outrage of, of people saying they don't like it. Like, I don't like it. I don't want to go like as a baseball fan, I don't want to go downtown to watch a baseball game. Like that's not what I go down. Like if I go downtown, it's not to go watch sports. Like I'm not going down there to watch a baseball game. Um, and the ironic thing about baseball is like they play it every day during the week. Like the, you will play as a fact more games on like during the week, like on weekdays than you will on weekends. Like who is going to the Royals games on Tuesday evenings in July so they can go to power and light afterwards. Like I get it for the weekends, but this kills for me any chance that I could be sitting on my couch at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday night, buy tickets and be in my seat by game time on any given day, on any given Tuesday. Now, I understand from the Royals' perspective why they don't care. They don't care about me living out in independence about why I don't want them to go downtown. And I understand why the Royals don't care. There's more money out that way. There's more stuff to do out that way. I get why the Royals are doing it. I understand. I don't blame them one bit. It's the smart decision. I just don't like it. And I think there's a lot of outrage on Twitter the other day. It was like, oh, this is the smart move. Yeah, no, I know. It is absolutely the right move. I get why they're doing it. I just don't, you know, I love where the stadium's at. I could literally, like an hour ago at 640, buy a ticket on my phone and be in the stadium by first pitch. It's so convenient. And I, and I use the airport metaphor. It's like I could go out to KCI, MCI, you know, a few minutes before my – before your plane takes off and, and you can get on in a hurry. Like it's just very, very different. Um, it's so convenient, but that doesn't mean that it's good for progress for the city. It doesn't mean it's good for the development of the city. It doesn't mean it's good for, for growing businesses in and around Kansas city. And I get that my convenience isn't necessarily the best thing for Kansas city. It just sucks in my opinion that they're potentially going to move it and then create, you know, a show around it. Because when I go out to the K, I'm watching a baseball game. I don't go out for the spectacle. And what sounds like what they're doing is, is building a spectacle out of it, which I get from a business perspective, but um, I personally am not a fan. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I think it's one of those, I've had so many good experiences at Kauffman Stadium. It's like, I can't imagine watching a Royals game anywhere else. And when you think about the generations, I mean, because Kauffman's been there since 1973. I mean, it's so many people for many, many, many years, parents taking their kids, you're taking their kids, you're taking their kids to Kauffman Stadium. Like that's just that. And it's not like it's a, you know, historical landmark like Fenway or Wrigley, but around here, like it does mean something to people to be able to go to the K and go to Arrowhead, which is just right there. And so it's going to be an adjustment. It's going to be different from a business perspective. I get it, but that doesn't always mean that it's the right decision holistically right i understand that money drives everything and that's certainly why they're doing it but again it's kind of like you said like i get it doesn't mean i have to like it and that's kind of how i feel about it right now and we're still years off from this actually really coming to fruition it's not like they're going to tear down kaufman stadium in two years and build a ballpark like we're still going to have time to figure all this out but for right now it's just like eh all right that's what they're gonna do they're gonna do and let's enjoy the last few years we have at the k i'm gonna look at it i guess okay so Let's go back and talk about the idea of being downtown. Like if you're taking your kids to the game, if you got little kids, the K is perfect because there's nothing out there. You can go out to the parking lot. You can show them Arrowhead while you're out there. They can run around the parking lot, um, tailgate, play catch with your kid in the parking lot. Like 
I was I was in Denver a couple years ago. There's nowhere where you can go at, at Coors Stadium around the stadium and like play catch with your kid while you're tailgating the game. At, at Coffin Stadium, you get to do that. And so, like, I understand why people want it downtown. But again, I think the the rhetoric became like anybody who didn't want a downtown stadium was just like, oh, dumb and old and bad. And bad. It's like, no, I just I, I love where the K is. It's super easy to get back on the highway. It's super easy to get in and out. Um, and like you said, or, or like we were talking about, it is truly one of the nicest stadiums in Major League Baseball. Like, I know it's also like the sixth oldest at the moment, but it is so nice. I've been to like 10 or 12 different MLB stadiums. And Kauffman Stadium is legitimately one of the nicest that I've ever been to. It is an awesome place to watch baseball. Now, I know that the facilities around Kauffman Stadium aren't all that. And, and I was listening to like um, – or, or maybe Carrington Harrison just tweeted it the other day. He said something to the effect of, you know, oh, in all this time, they've, all they've been able to build is a, is a Denny's and a Taco Bell around the K. It's like – Honestly, who is going to a baseball game and then and then doing all this stuff afterwards? Like, by the time you get off work at five o'clock on any given day, and, and grab something to eat, by the time you drive out to the K, what like what time are we saving? I so like I I get it. There are people who are doing this, but it's like I, I wonder I wonder why we can't just agree to have differences about where we want the stadium. Like, oh, you want it downtown? That's cool. I want it in Eastern Jackson County, right there at the Truman sports complex. That's cool. It's, it's so funny to me how the rhetoric like gets, gets revolved around, Oh, you're just, you're so this and that for wanting the stadium to be at the Truman sports complex. It's like, yeah, it's easy. Well, and I know that sometimes, especially on like a really crowded night at the K like getting out and the, the parking lot situation can be a logistical nightmare. I'm like, okay, I get it. Uh, can you imagine how bad that's going to be in downtown Kansas city, which isn't all that big to begin with. <laughs> you stick a, a stadium that can fit 35 to 40,000 there in a downtown area. Where the hell are we going to, where the hell are we going to park and where, how the heck are you going to get out in a timely fashion? Like good luck figuring that one out. I'm not smart enough to try and figure that one out, but that was the first thing I'm like, yeah, sure. Getting out of the case sucks sometimes, but it can't be that bad. especially compared to what you would get in a downtown area. Yeah, I don't know, and and that and that is one thing that that that, that I'm curious about is how they build build up the parking, um, like you know, being able to drive like Kansas City. One thing that's different about Kansas City than these other places is Kansas City has a huge metro. It's one of the biggest, like in terms of like land. It's one of the larger cities in the country, and so you have people from all kinds of different suburbs who drive their personal car to the game where. When I was in Denver, it appears that there's not a lot of that going on. And if you do, you're parking in like the neighbor's yard or in front of uh, or on, like on public streets, like having the parking lot there. I just again, if you, if you think differently, that is totally fine. I just I love the convenience of the K. I will say I am excited to see what the Chiefs do with Arrowhead because they're going to build. I mean, basically, they're going to have their Chiefs kingdom uh, there at the Truman Sports Complex. I would imagine <clears throat> that they, when they tear down the K, that they look into building a new Arrowhead Stadium or Geha Stadium, whatever they want to call it. I like calling it Geha. I know it's G-E-H-A. It's the Geha building. So you want to build your new Geha Stadium there next door? Um, I, like, who knows what that looks like? Could you finally get the dome that allows them, the rolling dome that allows them to bring a Super Bowl to Kansas City? 
can we get the cheating the cheating half dome like Seattle has where we can have the loudest stadium in the world and have like half a dome on top that we can roll back when it's nice and roll on for Super Bowls in the winter? Like, I don't know. I think the Chiefs could do something really cool over there. And I think it's perfect timing. Well, by then it may not be perfect timing because by then it's probably the end of Patrick Mahomes' career. Um, but let's say they make a good transition in 2035-ish. Hopefully Mahomes is still winning MVPs. But, um, you know, that's that's 16, 17 years of his career by then. So, uh, anyway, the Chiefs have a really cool opportunity with their little – they're having the entire facility to themselves. Um, I'm kind of excited to see what they do with it. Yeah, that's certainly a layer to this that is going to be very interesting to follow as well on the the NFL side. I mean, the Chiefs are riding so high right now that it wouldn't shock me if they had some pull there as well to go, hey, hey, we're we're like winning Super Bowls and stuff right now, and we have the best player on the planet. Let let's let's get some momentum to kind of give give us our own area. Which can't say I blame them at this point, but you know, hopefully the Royals are able to turn things around and we're able to kind of have both of them riding high, you know, at least for a, you know, a three to four year stretch where Kansas city is kind of the hub of successful sports. I mean, we had a little bit of that in the early 2010s, which is pretty awesome, but you know, between 2013 and 2020, I mean, soccer won a title, the Royals won a title, the Chiefs won a title. It's a pretty good time to be in Kansas city. And hopefully we'll get to have some of that stretch again. Yeah, no doubt. I think, um, the, the opportunities that Kansas City has as they grow. And um, specifically, I think we'll see what we're capable of when they host, hopefully, fingers crossed, have an opportunity to host a World Cup um, a round. Um, was it 2026 or 2030? So, 26. 26. So um, hopefully we'll get a chance to see that here in the next few years, see what Kansas City looks like when it really hosts a big event like that. And um, I think the – the evolution of Kansas city with the new airport and potentially hosting a world cup qualifying round or not qualifying round, but the opening round, the opening pool, what do they call that? Um, could also influence potentially having a super bowl, uh, in Kansas city, if we prove yeah. that we can handle all that. So really cool opportunities. And again, all coming back to, I understand why the stadium is going downtown. I just don't have to like it to also understand why they're doing it. Yeah, for sure. We don't need to talk any more in circles than that that I'm pretty sure we have for the last 10 minutes. If you're still listening to this, God bless you. Uh, on the other side of this break, we'll, we'll talk about some of the minor league stuff over the last couple of weeks and anything you guys might have missed, uh, we'll hit on that right after this. All right, Alex. So I, I want to start here. Um, just some of the, I think the biggest news over the last week and a half, two weeks is uh, the Quad Cities River Bandits there in the high A central. Uh, they clinched a playoff berth. They clinched, I believe, the number one seed as well with the best record in the league uh, by a decent margin. Uh, it's going to be fun to follow, and we have at least one team for sure that is uh, going to have a legitimate shot at winning um, at winning a, uh, a league title. Yeah, that is um, that team has been a freaking buzzsaw all year. I mean, they started off with Massey and Pasquantino, and then Jason Guzman didn't tear the cover off the ball early until he went to the Olympics, and now you have. Michael Massey and Kale Emshoff and Michael Garcia is there now. And even though Pasquantino has gone, I mean, my goodness gracious, man, that team, they just keep rolling them through. Will Klein is having one of the best seasons by a Royals pitcher that I can remember in terms of anything really. I mean, he is just dominating. Just sheer dominance. Yeah. I know he's out of the bullpen, but my gosh, 
Um, so they've, they've just continued to roll talent through that spot, that site through the beginning of the season and then adding reinforcements later on. Um, been a lot of fun to watch. And I'm excited to see him get to compete for a playoff spot. Uh, Cause that means we're just going to keep getting extended looks at these guys. Uh, Nick Lofton, Tucker Bradley's there. So um, yeah, just, I, I'm excited about the playoffs for the extended look, but also just the, the, continue to beat the drum of compete, 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 and win, win, win at all levels, at all costs. Because I do think that's a skill that translates to the big leagues. Absolutely. And we've, we've seen the Royals, and I've talked about it multiple times on this, this podcast, that the Royals put a premium on guys having success in the minor leagues together. The core of Moose and Haas and, you know, and Salvi and all those guys, they won multiple titles through the, you know, all the way up. And yeah, by the way, in the, the high A central quad cities finished. Did you, do you know their record? No, I don't. 74 and 39. They, <laughs> they let, they lead the division, just the West division with Cedar Rapids, Wisconsin, uh, Beloit, South Bend and Peoria by 12 games on second place. The Peoria, they, they beat them by a month for, for perspective. And even then, the late the the Lake County captains who are the who are, have the uh, the top spot in the East, they're sixty three and fifty three. So Quad Cities is eleven games better than everybody else in this league. And sure, they've lost some you know some guys to promotions and injuries and whatever. And they're still like it does it hasn't mattered. Anybody that they brought up and it, that has stayed there all year has just dominated this league. I, it would not shock me if they win this thing handily. Yeah, especially the pitching they have. I mean, A.J. Block is still in the rotation, pitching really well. Um, Anthony Veneciano is still pitching really well in that rotation. Like, um, they just – they've got it all. They've got a good rotation. They've got a good bullpen. They've got a good offense. It's just, it's just been legitimately one of the most fun. We talked about it at the beginning of the year. Everybody was focused on double A, and we mentioned, like, guys – like this team in, in high A is going to be a ton of fun to watch because they've got some maulers. They've got some arms. Like they just got everything you need to have a good minor league team. They even had like the, um, like the minor league veteran experience in Logan Porter or in, um, Oh, what was, uh, William Hancock. And then, um, Oh, who else were they running out there every day that I can't remember. Anyway, Logan Porter specifically and William Hancock behind the plate, get a couple of veteran catchers who can mash uh, minor league pitching in there. It was just a really, really good setup to have a really successful team this year. Absolutely. And, and a guy that's had a ton of success, or at least over, and for sure over the last couple of weeks, uh, has been uh, Nick Lofton, who has strikeout rates. He's only striking out 15% of his plate appearances. Waiter runs created plus around 129, you know, slashing 287, 374, 455. He's going to be, and we, we talked about him a little bit uh, on our last episode looking at you know, what 2022 could look like, but the way he's played down the stretch is very encouraging. And he's going to be one of the main guys to watch in 2022 that could move even quicker. Yeah. I like Lofton a lot. I still kind of wonder what his ceiling is. Like, I, I don't mean to say a ceiling of like Whit Merrifield, like it's a bad thing, but I think his ceiling could be like Whit Merrifield and, Again, I don't mean to sound that bad, but I, I thought when they drafted him, his ceiling could be even higher than that, like his like his top 1% outcome. I'm starting to think that his very ceiling is probably like wit-ish, but it's still a two-time all-star, like a, a really good player, really obviously very valuable, very versatile. 
um, and on a bad team was your best player for a year um, while Salvi was out. So there is opportunity there. I really think that, um, you know, Lofton can play multiple positions like Witt always did and, you know, all that good stuff. So I, I do think there's value there, and he has been so solid. He just knocks line drives all over the place. Doesn't have the elite speed, doesn't have the elite power. He's just very, very solid all over the field. Yeah, the ability to play multiple positions, I think, is makes him most intriguing because it's not – I don't think he necessarily has one set spot. I think he really can play anywhere well enough that he can make it work at the big league level, kind of like Witt. I mean, Witt's a good and probably, a, you know, a gold glove defender at second base, but still plays the outfield well enough. You can stick him out there, and it's not a detriment either. Uh, maybe not center field, but you put him in a corner and it works just fine. So I, I'm very curious where he where he ends up sticking uh, if they end up kind of finding a place for him or they just kind of keep moving around like they, they have in, at times this year. Yeah, last thing I want to get into here is the guys in, in Omaha. I, I know that everything has been made about them this year that I, I quite literally it has been unbelievable to watch them play, and I know we've talked about them a ton. We've talked about them all year. So um, not, to, not to beat a dead horse, but the one thing that I do find interesting is MJ Melendez playing third base, Nick Prodder tonight making the start in right field. People keep asking us. It's funny that can Vinny Pasquantino play the outfield? Can Vinny Pasquantino play the outfield? It's like, no, but that doesn't mean that Prado can't. Like, I think it's funny that we always get like, okay, Prado is like potentially gold glove first base defender. That doesn't mean he can't move to the outfield. He would be more valuable out there. Um, because it also allows Vinny Pasquantino to play first base if they both get to that point, right? So <laughs> I think it's funny that the question is always, can Vinny move, not can Nick move? Um, but we need to start getting used to the idea that Nick Prado might be able to play right field on a long-term basis. Nick Prado is a decent athlete. Nick Prado is a good pitcher in high school, meaning he's got a really good arm. I think there's a chance Nick Prado could go out to right field and be better than Hunter Dozier, be better than Jorge Soler was. And not that that's good, but you ran Jorge Soler out there in right field every day. And, I mean, what he was giving you offensively that year, he hit 48 home runs. You weren't losing a whole lot. So I think Nick Prado can go out there, hold his own, and as long as you surround him with other good defenders, he's going to be okay. Now, this may not be something that holds up, but I do believe in Nick Prado, the, the idea that he could play outfield. And as long as Vinny Pasquantino is hitting at double A, it's, it's something they need to do more of. And I think it was David Lesky made this point the other day. Like, I understand why they didn't do this early on. Some people will be like, well, why didn't they put Melinda's at third early on? Or why isn't Nick Prado always trying to play the outfield? It's like, did you see what they did in 2018? They were horrible at the plate. Why would we want to give them more things to worry about? We got to get the bats right first. Let's get the bats right. Then we'll move on and worry about the defense. Um, I think it's a really good point. And now that Prado and Melinda's are hitting, now you can start moving them around, start experimenting with them. They're 22 years old. Like, they can play other positions. They're going to be athletic enough to hold their own. The question is going to be is when we evaluate them at these positions, do we think that they can go further? Do we think they can play defense adequately at the big league level? And if the answer is yes, then they need to be because there's other guys that can play behind the plate and play first base and play third base. We have got to start moving some guys around because the Royals kind of have a log jam of bats at certain positions that we need to find out if they can help out at, at other spots on the field. Yeah, for sure. And the, the thought of Prado and right field to me is very intriguing because I, 
Gold Glow defender at first, and that and that's great. But I think moving into a corner, while you still predominantly when you play corner outfield position, it's you you know you still have to hit right. But at first base, like you really have to hit, and you could be a Gold Glove defender. But if you're not going to hit, then you can find a replacement very quickly. It's kind of, I look at Nick Prado in the same way. I kind of look at like a like an Evan White type for Seattle. That you're an 80 grade defender, 75, 80 grade defender, and that's cool. But if you can't hit enough at first, then like let's move you to a corner where you're maybe a 55 or 60 defender, which is still above average and good. And it's going to take a little bit of pressure off your bat and allow you to play that level of defense and not nearly have the same amount of pressure on your bat. And I think even honestly, early on, if you want to do it with Prado when he gets to the big leagues, so that he's not having to worry about putting up a 140 way to run straight a plus at, at first base, put him in a corner. And, you know, I think he's going to be just fine. He's athletic enough. And if you give him a full off season to really think about that, and it's not completely taking him away from first base, but you give him an outfield glove and you take him down to Arizona, you know, about six weeks before everybody reports go, let's work on some fly balls and let's see where this goes. And, and if it gets to a point where you can put him in right field full-time and Vinny's hitting enough continually uh, that you can put him at first, then you have a good problem. And this is not something the Royals had two years ago was a good problem of a log jam of bats that they had to find a place for. They didn't have that. Now they do. And now it's, they have some movable chess pieces, athletic defenders that you can put in multiple positions. And, and I don't think MJ playing third is an indictment on his ability behind the plate because he is a fantastic defender behind the plate, but it gives the Royals an option. If they want to put him in the lineup, they can put him at third base because they think the bat's going to work and they still have Salva. You can still go and catch, you know, you know, into his age 32 season. And if you want to put him behind the plate, take some pressure off of Salvi to keep him durable for 155 games, then they have that opportunity. I 100%. I don't understand, you know, um, I shouldn't say I don't understand. I don't know what the future holds in terms of where the Royals want all these guys, where they want these guys to play. So understand is a bad word. I don't know where they want these guys to be playing, but it's always good to have options. And anybody who, you know, is worried about moving Salvi out from behind the plate or Melinda's out from behind the plate or Prado off of first base needs to just say, Hey, look, um, the bats are what matters. If you hit, you're going to play. We will find a spot for you to play as long as you are adequate. Um, last thing for me tonight, Joel, I wanted to ask you about this. The, I'm looking at the standings right now. The Seattle Mariners, four games back of the second wild card. They're tied with Oakland, and the Yankees are in a pretty solid third place behind Toronto and Boston. So Toronto and Boston um, currently have the wild card spots. The Yankees are a half game back. Seattle is four games back. Seattle still has – how many games Seattle got left? Seattle still has um, – is it 18 games left or 19 games left? Maybe even less after tonight. They, they played Boston. We're recording on Wednesday. They played Boston in the day game and lost in extras. Ended up losing two or three to Boston, which was – that's a t- that's tough, especially when you're trying to to fight for that second wild card spot, and it's still there for the taking with the way the Yankees are playing and the way Oakland's faltering too. Sixteen games left, seven against Oakland. So there's your opportunity to run them down. Six against the Los Angeles Angels, who aren't in it. Three against the Kansas City Royals. That's a really favorable schedule if you're trying to run down a wild card spot. You're right, losing two of three to Kansas or losing two of three to Boston, who's currently in front of you, doesn't help. Um, 
but I'm rooting for him. I know uh, Jared Carabas on Twitter has dubbed them America team. I am all in on the Seattle Mariners. If the Seattle Mar- Mariners make the playoffs, they're going to get 100% of my rooted vesting interest in the 2021 MLB playoffs. So um, I know we're going out to the game Friday night, so we'll be able to go out there and um, watch a dynamic pitching matchup, I think, is Brady Singer and – Chris Flexen. So um, ought to be a good game. Good opportunity for Seattle to pick up a few games on the on the competition here as they roll into Kansas City. But um, won't be rooting for them yet. They got to make the playoffs to earn my rooting interest. But ought to be a good series. And um, hopefully, hopefully Seattle can find a way to make the playoffs without beating Kansas City once. Yeah, um, this is one of this is you know this week um, and anytime. I root for the, the Royals for 155 games a year. Uh, they're, the seven that I don't are when they're playing Seattle. That's as much as I love the Royals, uh, you know, being living in Kansas City and considering my home, you know, that's, you know, I still do. But when they play Seattle, that's where my heart lies because that's where my heart has lied since I was about two and a half, three years old. So you, you just, you, I got to go back to my roots. And so when you see me at Kauffman Stadium, if you happen to see Alex or I, uh, you know, let us know that support you support the podcast and all that. Uh, but you'll see me in my uh, Ken Griffey Jr. jersey and my Ken Griffey Jr. hat uh, sitting behind home plate wearing my Mariners gear because that's that's where I'm going to be at the K uh, on Friday night. And it would be the most Mariners thing of all time to to be within a wild card spot in a playoff spot for the first time in two decades and get swept by Kansas City and pretty much take themselves out of it. So. I mean, I haven't seen the Mariners make the playoffs since I was four. So, and they have the, still continue to have the longest playoff drought of any team in the four major sports between NHL, NBA, NFL, and MLB. So, I'm not expecting it this year, but I certainly was not expecting them to be a team that finished above 500. I kind of thought they would be where we thought Kansas City would be at around that 74 to 77 win range. And then next year, really start to, to get into it. And I think that's still going to be the case. I think they're going to be better next year, but. To see them in September within range of a wild card spot is I'm good enough with that. That's almost like house money at this point because I just wasn't expecting it. And if they get hot over the, the those next two weeks, you know, these next two, two and a half weeks and find themselves in a, a wild card position uh, and they're in the playoffs, one, they're going to play Toronto and that's terrifying because that lineup just bangs. But two, I'm going to be watching it more intently and with more emotion on it than that 2014 wildcard game with the Royals that I was watching with an intense amount of emotion riding on it. That 2014 wildcard game, man, I was there. I've never, I have still to this day never been in a more nutty environment um, than that wildcard game. Like I just, it was, a, it was such a blur. And it was like, it was kind of like the, you know, with, um, with Patrick Mahomes, it's like the Chiefs have never lost. Like on Sunday, everybody was apocalyptic, and it was just like, ah, give him 30 minutes, he'll be fine. It's like with that wild card game, it's like they kept getting down, down, down. It's just like, ah, give him a few minutes, they'll figure it out. They'll steal a few bases, knock a few singles, game will be tied. We'll, we'll be fine. And all of a sudden, they did. They won it, and I, I, I have still never been like – not that I had like an outer body experience or out of body experience, but it was literally like, I was like, it was just like you were floating. It's like, Holy cow. Like, it's not just that they won the game and then like epic fashions, like the Royals are going to the playoffs. Like this is like, and, cause I didn't, I don't really consider the wild card to be the playoffs. It is a playoff, but I don't consider it to be like the playoffs, but it was like that moment, like when Salvi hit that ball past Donaldson, it was like, 
oh my God, for the first time in my life, the Royals are going to the playoffs. It was so cool. So yeah, no, I know the feeling and I, I really hope you get to experience that with your, with your Mariners this year. Yeah. The, the, my, one of my biggest regrets of my sports life was falling asleep before that game ended. I woke up to seeing Salvador Perez hit the walk-off. I didn't know. Joel, you've never told me this before. You yeah. fell asleep during the wild card game. I fell asleep in the top of the. Where did that game go? Thirteen. How many innings was it? Thirteen was it innings 13? sounds right. Fourteen, yeah, thirteen think, innings sounds right. Yeah, I fell asleep. I remember that Oakland hit a sack fly to take the lead, and I think it was the twelfth. And I and I fell asleep, and that's the last thing I remember. And I'm thinking, okay, well. Nothing else. Maybe I'll wake up in the morning and something good happens. And I woke up. First thing I see on my phone when I open it is Salvi hitting that ball past Donaldson. I'm like, I really fell asleep in one of the best moments in Royals history in the last 30 Whoa, years. That was one of the like, best mo- moments in like modern baseball history. Yeah, that was incredible. I know. Oh, yeah. No, you were in high school. How did you fall asleep? I had had football practice <laughs> right before that. And so I was oh, exhausted. No. Yeah. That's crazy. I was taking – I didn't miss the – ending of the 2015 game four of the ALDS, but I was taking pitcher BP before all hell broke loose in the eighth and then just happened to walk into the locker room as the rally started. Literally, I think Alex Rio singled to open the inning and I walked in and just got to watch the rest of it. So, um, like, I get missing some games, but my gosh, man, fell asleep. That's I know, you never told me that before. Yeah, that's, that, that's, one, that's one of those, like, biggest regret moments in my sports life is the fact in my sports fandom that I missed one of the biggest moments in Royals history. And that's just like, ah. Good Lord. Okay, well, for now, if the Mariners make the playoffs this year, you got to have coffee or <laughs> oh, yeah. something else, like some amphetamine ready to roll. Oh, yeah. No, if the Mariners, like, if the Mariners actually do that, like, I'm not a big crier. But that might be one of those moments in my life that I 100% cry. If the Mariners not only make the playoffs, but like actually do something. Because even in the year in 2001, when they won 116 games, they lost to the freaking Yankees in the ALCS. They got swept, I think. So it's like, man. Yeah, that was right in the middle of that dynasty the Yankees were running. Yeah. That was so frustrating. Win 116 games, and Ichiro, Ichiro wins Rookie of the Year MVP. You get 90th percentile outcomes from like, David Bell and Brett Boone and John Olerud, Mike Cameron, and you still can't do anything. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm sure that no one's listening to this now because we haven't talked about the Royals in 10 minutes. But if you still are listening, thank you again. Uh, you see Alex and I at the game on Friday night. Be sure to tell us what's up and to give us suggestions what you want to talk about this, want to talk about this offseason because we're going to need offseason content at some point. Like We can't just stop recording like we've done the last – two off seasons. <laughs> we got, we got to keep this thing, keep this thing in gear. Uh, but thank you once again, uh, to all of you that support us. Uh, we, we're in the home stretch of the minor league season. Still got the minor league playoffs coming up here soon. Uh, so we still got tons of content to pump out here. And then uh, as the off season rolls in, we still got a lot to talk about because there's a chance we're some of the, are the top guys in the system that have uh, helped us gain a bunch of followers and get up with the big league club. So we got, we got to keep this thing rolling. Uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a good one.